Good morning, Resurrection Church. My name's Daniel. As Aaron said earlier, I'm a pastor at South Cities Church, formerly Bethlehem Baptist Church's South Campus in South Lakeville. Uh, I'm going to pray. I'm going to give a word of greeting to the few of you I know. And then we're going to dig into God's word together and see what Third John has for you on this pretty momentous day, monumentous day. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. It is precious. How firm a foundation for us saints. God, your word tells us that the soul that seeks refuge in Jesus, well, you will not forsake that soul and neither should we. So as Dear friends, leave for other shores. You're not going to forsake them, and I ask that this church would remember them and not forsake them either. May this sermon be fit to that end, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, a word of brief greeting. I was looking, you don't know me, uh, I'm a voracious journaler. I uh, for the last 30 plus years have journaled endlessly. So when I looked yesterday and saw that 18 years ago this Saturday, I met a guy named Mel Hennigan in the registration line at Northland Baptist Bible College. And I didn't say anything else other than like a potpourri of people that I had met. Uh, so I don't know what happened after that. I do remember uh, fondly some of our Memories, getting to know each other at college. I also remember that when we were juniors at Northland, uh, this girl named Rachel Brown caught Mel's eye and all the furtive glances and everything else commenced. Uh, but I didn't mention you, Rachel, until October 19th, 2009, when Natalie and I came back to visit, and I think you and Mel were well on your way to something happening. And then, Deb, we go way back to this Saturday uh, when you came over to my house, I have not journaled about you yet, but maybe I'll change that between now and soon. So there's a, there's a reason that Aaron called me up uh, a month ago and said, would you consider preaching this message? It's because of some of the thick relationships that are here, and I presume will continue past this day uh, well into the future. Yes, well into the new heavens and new earth. And so this sermon from 3 John, which is a text that I chose, speaks to the reality of what you as a church are about to do. It is not only Aaron's relationship with Melcher and Rachel, or uh, the elders' relationship with Deb, or uh, any individual connections here that are significant for this day. You as a church are blessing and sending Christian missionaries, workers, to other places for the sake of the gospel. And Third John speaks to that reality. So I told Aaron as I walked in, this can be the shortest sermon ever preached at Resurrection Church. He said, can it be 15 minutes? I said, no, not that short. So it's going to be longer than that, but not too much longer. We're going to dive right into Third John. So uh, I don't think you guys have pew Bibles as per se, but there are CSBs, Christian Standard Bibles on, in the back. It's on page 1087. So if you've got a Bible that's one of those Bibles, I'd encourage you to follow along closely with me because we're going to be looking at a great number of things here in this text. So first off, 3 John. What, 
with some background here. I'm just going to assume rather than prove that the author of 3 John is John the Apostle, the beloved disciple, who also wrote 1 John, 2 John, and the Apocalypse of John, a.k.a. Revelation. Not Revelations. Revelation. Okay. So if he wrote all of these things, why is that significant for us here? Uh, and, well, just briefly, what are some proofs for that? There's loads, like, like word-for-word similar language between 3 John and 2 John. And there's lots of similar language and definitely similar concepts taken up in the Gospel of John and 1 John, and then again in the book of Revelation. So it's important as we start out to say, hey, there's an author here in 3 John that also wrote some other things. Because when he begins to use terms and phrases that he doesn't define in 3 John, we can say, did he define them elsewhere? Did he elsewhere in the Bible, like, bring up these concepts and these phrases and begin to define them. So I think that's why it's important that we see that John the Apostle is the one writing this letter, particularly because of this word that's used repeatedly again and again in 3 John, truth, the Greek word aletheia. It's mentioned seven times in this short letter, more than even love or its cognates like beloved. What does John mean by truth? Again, if we're going to accept that John wrote these other letters, we can go to some of them and seek to define what John means. Does he just mean this nebulous idea of whatever is factually true in the world, all truth is God's truth, which is true. Everything that's true is God's truth. Does he mean something more specific than that? When you turn to the Gospel of John, you find a very interesting story only recorded in the Gospel of John, a particular exchange between Jesus and Pontius Pilate. One of the ways, if you, if you are familiar with studying your Bible or you're just getting out studying your Bible, one of the ways to like look at and see, hey, what does an author particularly care about, especially when looking at the Gospels, is, well, what does one Gospel author mention that others do not? And this is one that only John mentions. In John chapter 18, verses 36 through 38, Jesus and Pilate have this exchange as Jesus is in the inner sanctum of the Roman uh, garrison or palace and being judged by Pilate. My kingdom is not of this world. This is John 18, verse 36. My kingdom is not of this world, said Jesus. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. You're a king then, Pilate asked. You say that I'm a king, Jesus replied. I was born for this, and I have come into the world for this, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate replies, what is truth? What is the truth that Jesus testified to? What does John mean in 3 John when he says things like, uh, you know, who I love in the truth. Uh, I the fellow believers testified to your fidelity of the truth, how you're walking in the truth. I've got no greater joy than this, than my children walk in the truth. What does John mean? Well, in John 8, Jesus testified to the truth about who he was. Remember that exchange? They pick up stones to kill him. If, if anybody, if you're ever randomly just talking to somebody and it's like, Jesus was a good teacher, but he wasn't God. Turn to John 6, turn to John 8, 
And look at why the Jewish authorities were seeking to kill Jesus. It wasn't because he was just another good rabbi. It's because he said, before Abraham was, I am. Okay, they pick up stones to kill him. Jesus testified to the truth that he was God in the flesh and king. In John 14, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In John 16, Jesus said the Holy Spirit was going to come and was going to guide the disciples into all truth, which if you look a little bit deeper into John 16, like Jesus is saying is the words that he's going to share with them, the Holy Spirit's going to come and remind them. So the truth is connected to all that Jesus taught, his very words. If we turn forward to the letter of 2 John, just the page before this in your Bible, we see in 2 John verses 1 and 2 and then verses 9 and 10, consider this and what the truth is. The elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth, probably a, uh, a creative way of saying to the church and those that are a part of it, whom I love in truth. And not only I, but also those who know the truth because of the truth that remains in us and will be with us forever. And then verses 9 and 10, anyone who does not remain in Christ's teaching but goes beyond it does not have God. The one who remains in that teaching, this one has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and doesn't bring this teaching, do not receive him into your home and do not greet him. Okay, the truth remains in us at the beginning of Second John. And then the Father and the Son are in us at the end of Second John. Something here about the truth and its connection to Jesus that's really important as we open up to 3 John and as we consider the Hennigans and Deb leaving. When John opens his letter by commending his friend Gaius for his fidelity to the truth, who's also walking in the truth, we need to have this in mind. The truth that John is interested in, the truth that John is talking about, is the truth about Jesus. It's the truth about who is Jesus? He's the only Lord. He's the King. He's the only Savior from sin and death and Satan. And what did Jesus teach? Jesus taught, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. For it is commandments that aren't burdensome. Love for God. Love for neighbor. So the truth, as we can open up to 3 John, and as we consider sending people for the sake of the gospel, the truth is very important. So we think about how churches care for and show hospitality to those who are going out for the sake of the name. And that's what our whole text, the entire letter of 3 John, shows us. I'm going to pray again. We're going to dig into the exegesis of this passage and seek to apply it to our lives. So God, again, we ask for grace. May my words, my preparation, uh, little though it might be to me, be faithful and be multiplied according to the Holy Spirit. Let those with ears to hear, hear what you are saying, not chiefly what I'm saying, but what you are saying to this church. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So first, you see the centrality of trust and truth in verses one through four. The elder, to my dear friend Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Dear friend, I pray that you are prospering in every way and are in good health, just as your whole life is going well. For I was very glad when fellow believers came and testified to your fidelity to the truth, how you're walking in truth. I have no greater joy than this, to hear that my children are walking in the truth. 
John's joy is wrapped up in knowing that his kids are walking in the truth. Now, I've got kids. Maybe you've got kids. They were walking in this truth of the gospel. That would probably make you happy. Probably John does not mean that Gaius is his actual blood and flesh. But there's this kind of way in the New Testament of talking about children according to faith. This is probably the case that John's ministry has somehow led to the conversion of Gaius. And therefore, Gaius came to uh, believe in Jesus because of John's ministry. Again, this is the truth about Jesus. And this is not just John's perception from a distance or from history. It's everybody's perception. It's everybody's perception that Gaius is walking in the truth. In verse 3, fellow believers came and testified to your fidelity to the truth. Now, very possibly this is believers that Gaius has cared for in their travels, as we're going to dig into in a little bit. Notice here... John doesn't say, which would be a bit more normal for him, a phrase like walking in love. Also a phrase that Paul takes up in Colossians and a few other places, Romans 14. This is a phrase that John would normally use, like 2 John 6. This is love that we walk according to Jesus' commands. This is the command you have heard from the beginning, that you walk in love. So I think, why, why is... John most interested in saying things like walk in truth here in 3rd John. Well, I think we have to say, like, there's a close connection between truth and love. The measurement of real love in your relationships and in our lives is aligned, not with just some nebulous idea of what is loving, what is winsome, what is whatever, what brings the warm fuzzies, but what aligns with the truth about Jesus Adherence to Jesus' teaching concerning love for God and love for others is the truth that Gaius follows. This is what drives Gaius' life, and this is what encourages John deeply. So walking in truth and walking in love are are flip sides. They're, They're part of the same coin, all right? Believing what's true, being sent out for the sake of what's true, for the sake of loving is one and the same. Now, let's consider what specifically John sees in Gaius that shows his adherence to the truth or to walking in it. So the second point, consider Gaius the trustworthy and truthful. Dear friend, you are acting faithfully in whatever you do for the brothers and sisters, especially when they are strangers. They have testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, since they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from pagans. Therefore, we ought to support such people so that we can be co-workers with the truth. So the situation here is that Gaius is apparently known for his actions in his local church setting on behalf of traveling Christian workers who really are strangers to him. They're the ones that have probably testified to Gaius' love. And they have said that he has sent them out in a manner worthy of God, which is apparently something that John wants Gaius to continue. The church, and I think it is one church under consideration here, not multiple churches. The church here, and I'll talk about that in a second, apparently sees many Christians come and go for the sake of the gospel. 
possibly being sent by as like apostolic delegations, similar to what Paul did, like hearing from various people. Maybe John is doing the same thing. Part of John's commendation of Gaius is the way that he shows hospitality, xenophilos. All right, so xeno is the root word that means like stranger, but hospitality is love of strangers, literally in Greek. These strangers come and go, and they're not seeking support, financial support, remuneration, from surrounding non-Christian culture. There's two things I want to note here in this brief four verses. First, John tells Gaius to send such workers on, send them, literally send forward them in a manner worthy of God. What does that mean? What does it mean to do something in a manner worthy of God? Uh, Paul uses this similar phrase, Colossians 1.10, 1 Thessalonians 2.12. But there he's talking about walking in a manner worthy of God, something perhaps a little more existential. This is a bit more situational. Like This is about somehow relating to other people in a way that's worthy of God. Now, this can mean something like, in light of who God is and everything that you know about him, act accordingly. Or it could mean, consider how God would care for them and do likewise. Give them housing. Give them a paycheck. Provide for them the things needed for living. I think it's that second idea that's more likely. How would God treat these travelers? Act accordingly, Gaius. Lavish them with provision. The way that Gaius like, cares for them speaks to what he really holds dear and to the truth of the gospel that he believes. So first, what does it mean that walk in a manner or it to, uh, to send them on in a manner worthy. But second, what motivates Gaius? What, what motivation does John present to say, like, hey, do this? What would motivate a Gaius, an individual, or a church to show such hospitality? Look carefully with me at verse 8. Therefore, we ought to support such people so that we can be co-workers with the truth. Well, what does that mean? John seems to personify this truth about Jesus in a way that's pretty profound. It's not, I mean, the Christian Standard Bible does a great job of translating this. Not every Bible translation grabs this. It is not, I become a partner with Gaius. It's, I become a partner with the truth. It's as though in John's mind, the truth itself is working. And by committing yourself as an individual or as a church to hospitality for those who are passing through for the sake of the name, you are partnering not only with them, but with the truth of God as God's truth is working. It's like the truth is a force that can't be stopped. Better if Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, the truth is a person who can't be stopped. Do you remember uh, perhaps this passage, Paul in 2 Timothy, I think it's chapter 2? You know, uh, I am being held in chains. I'm bound in chains for the word of God. But the word of God is not bound. It's like God's word itself has a 
forcefulness. And for all those who will say to you, you've heard this in discourse over the last many years probably, be on the right side of history about various issues and culture, sexual revolution, things pertaining to sexual identity. Be on the right side of history as Roe v. Wade falls and other things like that. Be on the right side of history in regards to political discourse. Here's the right side of history, all right? There's coming a king and a kingdom. Yes, it's already here. And every earthly kingdom will fall. All your neighbors that don't know Christ will bow. And all your neighbors that do know Christ will bow too. Consider that this truly is the truth. And it matters what we do in regards to it. Becoming co-workers alongside the truth. So sending out Deb and the Hennigans is in some way Resurrection Church saying, truth, let's be buddies. You're unstoppable. I want to be a part of this. So if this is the trustworthy and truthful example of Gaius, let's consider in the next few verses the untrustworthy and truthless example of Diotrephes. Verse 9, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have first place among them, does not receive our authority. This is why, if I come, I will remind him of the works he is doing, slandering us with malicious words. He is not satisfied with that. He not only refuses to welcome fellow believers, but he even stops those who want to do so and expels them from the church. The situation in the church is clearer here. John apparently wrote a letter to a whole church. I think it's because he uses the article, the church, not a church or like uh, Diotrephes' church, like some kind of possessive pronoun. That he's probably writing this letter to one particular church that both Diotrephes and Gaius are a part of. If you look at the last little bit of verse 10 there, it's probable, I think, that what's happening is is Gaius, who's been very hospitable to people as they've come through, now has maybe an elder at his church, somebody in significant standing at his church, who's saying, stop, stop, stop accepting them, reject them, like I do, like we all should. And John is writing to encourage his friend not to go that route. And the stakes are very high. We'll see them in a second. In other words, Oh, and note this too. Uh, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have first place among them, does not receive our authority. I'm, I'm guessing that John wrote a letter to this church. I think this is implied, you know, uh, speculation perhaps on my part. And like would have been the case throughout all the various New Testament letters, like you write, like when Paul wrote his letters, he wrote it to a church designed to be read out loud, right? Even the pastoral letters, 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus, like you see that Paul wanted them, those letters written to those, those pastors to be read out loud so that there would be an understanding what had been communicated. I think that's what's happened here. And Diotrephes is like, who's John? I don't accept his authority. I'm, I'm the authority here. The wrong kind of elder rule, you might say. 
So John is writing to Gaius, his personal friend, to encourage him to stay on this other path. And what's that path? Again, Gaius apparently accepts these traveling Christian ministers, perhaps coming from John himself, who are passing through and shows them warm hospitality. Whereas Diotrephes places himself above the apostle and says, no, no, they're, they're not to be accepted in our church. But that's not all. Diotrephes, thinking him of himself as first, I, I think we have to understand the stakes here. In the early church, the apostles are writing all over the place. You get texts like 2 Peter 3, where Peter recognizes that Paul is not only writing just another letter, but he's writing scripture, right? Diotrephes is, is rejecting apostolic authority and so rejecting God. That's what, what John's going to go on here and say in a second. Um, do we have apostolic authority present today? Like, like Aaron, are you an apostle? You're, you're not a capital A apostle, like whatever else might be. But is there apostolic authority present today? Yes, yes there is. Where do we find apostolic authority present today? In God's word, like Third John and other places. God's word is our authority today faithfully passed on from the apostles onto us through many, many generations. John loves Gaius and sees him walking in truth. And here, another leader in the church, or perhaps the leader of the church, is peddling in lies, rejecting authority, and slandering the apostles. Now, Let's be really clear. Does this mean that if anybody shows up at those doors on a Sunday and says, I'm a traveling itinerant Christian, support me. It's actually happened at our church a few times over the years. Perhaps it's happened here. Is anybody that just shows up and says, I believe the gospel, a legitimate worker and therefore legitimately to receive hospitality? This is why the truth is so important as the ground for trusting such people. Remember 2 John 9 and 10, I quoted it earlier, but now hear it in this light. Anyone who does not remain in Christ's teaching but goes beyond it does not have God. The one who remains in that teaching, this one has both father and son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, don't receive him into your home. Do not greet him. The truth is very important when it comes to trusting those that are coming and going for the sake of the name. In other words, there's a couple tests when you consider people and their faithfulness. First, the test of truth. Is the one coming one that adheres to the truth? If that's the case, then there is in some sense a Christian responsibility to recognize and provide a measure of hospitality to those who are so coming through. They must come bearing true teaching, but if they come bearing falsehood, they must be rejected. Those who refuse, not just fail. I'm not just talking about like, your budget isn't big enough to support six church planting residents that present themselves. I'm not talking about that. Like, like there's a possibility that you just wouldn't have the means. But those who reject, expel whatever Diotrephes is doing, they show that they are not lovers of God. 
And then second test, those who will not submit themselves to the apostolic teaching, the teaching of Jesus, the scriptures, they call their very faith into question. That's what we see in verses 11 and 12. The path of truth for individuals and churches. Dear friend, don't imitate what is evil, diatrophies, I think. But what is good? The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. Everyone speaks well of Demetrius, even the truth itself, and we also speak well of him. You know that our testimony is true. Gaius, keep on doing what you're doing, imitating Christ alongside people like Demetrius, who's possibly the person bearing this letter from John. Even further in John's mind, look at what's happening. Gaius and Demetrius, they're of God. Look at their love for the brothers and sisters. Diotrephes is not of God. Look at his hate, I think, for the brothers and sisters. This is another uh, passage that John wrote. This is 1 John 4, 20 and 21. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he, does, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. This commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Diotrephes is showing where his faith is really at in regards to his rejection of fellow Christians. His faith is illegitimate, and when John shows up, John's going to remind him what he is doing. Hopefully to pull Diotrephes back from the brink. But it seems, as it were, that the truth rejects Diotrephes, and the truth speaks well. Again, this personified sense of truth. The truth speaks well of this man, Demetrius. What does it mean? What does it mean that truth speaks well? I, this was the one question where I was like, pull up my commentaries, look around a whole bunch. And guess what? Commentaries were really unhelpful. Surprise. So I just spent some time meditating, praying, thinking about it. I think at very least you can say that the evidence of what's going on in Demetrius's life is that he's a truth-loving man who treasures the truth in his words and actions. The gospel has so changed him that it's noticeable to people. It's just obvious. It's an obvious thing that the truth speaks well of him. Or we might say more objectively that, like Jesus said, like you will know them by their fruits. You'll be able to see clearly the state of their soul by what they do, that what he does speaks truth about him. Resurrection Church, do you treasure this truth about Jesus? Enough so that it kind of bleeds out of you metaphorically, like when the trials and tribulations of life come. And if need be, you will bleed literally for it in our comfort, comfortable American uh, utopia that many people think we are. Are you willing to risk much, both in going and in sending, and in staying. Yes, Deb and the Hennigans are going a place where perhaps the gospel is less named. They are no different in kind than you living in the cul-de-sacs in Burnsville or the surrounding suburbs. You too are missionaries among the nations. 
Don't think of it as different in kind. And then last, before we conclude, just consider, this is really unique in Third John, really unique. Okay. Peace be to you, this is verse 15, the friends send you greetings, greet the friends by name. Ordinarily, John, Paul, all kinds of other people are utilizing familial kinds of language. Brothers, sisters, children of the truth, stuff like that. John calls Gaius his friend, and then he uses the word for friendship here in verse 15. Do you realize that treasuring the truth together, yes, makes you brothers and sisters, but it makes you friends? Do you cultivate friendships? Have you cultivated friendships with these that are leaving? Your friendship might endure over time zones and over years. And I think it's important to seek for that to happen as best you can. So in conclusion, some words of application to different groups. So what I'm going to do is just like, I'm going to go from the older to the younger. And then I'm going to go from like kind of the entire congregation to a few of you in this congregation. So grandparents and parents. Do you think of it as a glorious thing when your kids decide that it's better for them to leave the comforts of America to go where it's not comfortable? To join with Jesus outside the camp, like the author of Hebrews says, because Jesus is there waiting for them? Do you think of that glorious and exciting and acceptable? Are you ready to loosen your grip if God so calls them? Are you ready to surrender all worldly claim upon them? And don't you know, don't you remember Jesus' words? That those that live children for my sake and the sake of the gospel will win much more both in this life and, eternal, and in the age to come, eternal life. Young people, you're a teenager, you're in your early 20s. Do you believe the lie that it's better to be here where it's comfortable than to go where it's not, or that it's certainly better to be here, fully acknowledging that you should be faithful wherever you are. To lose much for the sake of the gospel means a greater reward than just finding a mortgage, having kids, and living your lives here. Though that can be glorious and wonderful too. But don't buy the lie that that is necessarily better than leaving it behind. Don't you know, young people, that all those who lose family and possessions for the sake of Christ and the sake of the gospel will gain it all back? And kids, little kids, see a bunch of kids. or kids around. Do you see in Mel and Rachel and Deb someone worth following? Someone worth emulating? Emulating, that's too big a word. Somebody who, like, like following after, like, look at them and say, like, I want to be like that. No, I don't mean necessarily following them to Guam, though I'm sure they would like that. Mel has certainly asked me enough times to consider it. But I mean being willing to step outside where it feels comfortable to go someplace where it's not comfortable to you. Perhaps the sense of adventure that God is working in your heart. You like to have adventure. You know, my kids are like, 
It's an adventure to go to the playground or an adventure to go across, you know, wherever. Maybe God is working in your heart to shape that so that you're going to go someplace and share Jesus where they've never heard Jesus. I'd encourage you parents, grandparents, kids, pick up a book like To the Golden Shore, the missionary biography of the Judsons. And maybe stir up what God might be doing. And Resurrection Church, so we just went older to youngest. Resurrection Church, when you, maybe if you're an individual, or one of your members expresses a desire to cross cultures for the sake of the name, encourage them. Cultivate that. Don't buy into the siren song of our culture that it's best to stay in the comforts here. And the next time a church planting resident comes, be sure, as you have with the Hennigans, and certainly as you have with Deb, that you assess them according to God's word. When they won't hold the line about sexual sin, or they waffle on the nature of human life from conception to old age, or they believe that Jesus' commands to love your enemies only apply when it's not the election season, will you assess them, encourage them, and send them? Or will you be stingy? And yes, elders, Steve, who I don't know who Steve is, I've never met Steve, or maybe I have, Josh and Aaron, you must lead the church in discerning, as you have here, and as you might again, discerning to accept or reject those who will come and go for the sake of the name. Brothers, don't buy into the temptation of diatrophies to exert control where it's not yours to exert. God has his ways, and sometimes they're above ours. Do not buy into the cynicism of saying, there's no grace in this person that I see. But be careful. Be careful. So that you might see God's grace and what he's doing. May God grant you, brothers, and this whole church, the grace to discern grace in others. And so be partners, co-workers with the truth of the gospel as it spreads. That truth, verse 8, therefore we become co-workers with the truth, means that in sending the Hennigans and Deb, and when the gospel is preached through their ministry on Guam, when relationships are healed in their church, when people come to faith, when sin is rebuked and truth is treasured, this is not only their fruit and reward, it's yours. It's yours. I chose the song, How Firm a Foundation. We sang it right before, uh, and I'm not going to regale you with my, uh, my singing ability. Um, might feel less worshipful to you than perhaps earlier. But that song, that hymn, encapsulates much of what Third John is about. How firm a foundation, saint, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say? Implied, he can't. Then to you he has said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. And then, very interestingly, for all the hymnody that has come out of loads of hymns for all the years, normally hymns are like, here's the problem, here's our sin struggle, here's grace, here's consummation. The last verse of how firm a foundation turns not heavenward, but sideways, horizontally. That soul 
that on Jesus has leaned for repose, for refuge, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, never forsake. You hear in that the echo of Jesus? Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. Behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Mel and Rachel, Deb, Aria, Judah, the Lord is with you. And I'm certain that this church will not forsake you. Let's pray. God, as we approach communion now and express, I know Deb is leaving soon for one last time together face to face, our common fellowship with you through the eating of the bread and the drinking of uh, the cup. Would you be gracious to us to stir up in us love for truth and therefore love for each other. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.